Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Nana E. Coleman, MD, EDM. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Weill Cornell Medical College in New York, New York. She's an attending in the Division of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine and Director of Quality for the division. Dr. Coleman is with us today to discuss her editorial, Health-Related Outcomes in Children After Critical Illness, published in the July 2012 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Coleman. Dr. Parker, thank you for having me, and thank you for that kind introduction. So, Nana, would you start off um, telling us a little bit about health-related quality of life in children and why is it important for us as intensivists to evaluate this? Absolutely. I think that this editorial that we had the privilege of of working on really highlights a lot of important and very timely points. The work that Stevens and Freeman did really, I think, especially in this day and age where we're able to keep children alive longer and help them survive greater and greater degrees of critical illness, the question that we now ask is what comes of them? And in the ICU, when they're here, we don't often get to see what their long-term outcomes are. However, once they recover and convalesce and return to school in their daily lives, this is where these questions really become relevant. I think that in comparison to adults, when you consider children, children, as you know, are more apt to bounce back from trials and, and tribulations when these children go through the periods of critical illness, typically their survival rates are higher than those in adults. And most importantly, I think, when adults undergo critical illness, the number of years of life that they may have may be relatively limited, whereas in comparison, children, if they're able to survive the period of critical illness, have years and years to live. So I think especially in that context, it's important to think of how are they going to function, not just in six months, not just in one year, but how are they going to function as adults in 10 years, in 15 years, the disability that they may or may not acquire as a function of their critical illness is very likely and, and, and will have some impact on their adult life. And so I think that for that reason, it's particularly important to really evaluate how we can affect the greatest chances of success for them in the future. And I think this work that these two authors have done really provides us with a, a tool and an opportunity to evaluate that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Stevens and Freeman's article and their tool? Absolutely. So I, I, I really think that they have incrementally moved this field forward with their work in that they took a particular index that evaluates health-related outcomes and really were able to evaluate it and assess it and digest it for a specific population. However, the results that they illustrated in their study, I think, can be really thought of broadly across pediatric critical care. They chose to look at the Health Utilities Index, versions 2 and 3, in a pediatric population. Their work was done in the United Kingdom, and they selected patients, nearly 700 patients, over the age of 5 across 22 pediatric intensive care units in the country. 
to these patients, the health utilities indices were administered, and they really took a very in-depth look at the practicality of this tool, its reliability, and did some work in terms of its validity. They were able to demonstrate, I think most notably, that these particular indices have a high degree of inter-rater inter reliability. It's practical. It was a study that could be completed by parents and caregivers in approximately eight minutes, and which we know that when you have something that's so targeted and focused, your adherence rate and compliance rate and success in results really comes from making it simple and accessible. One of the other important parts about the health utility indices that they evaluated is that there was quite a bit of congruence between parent and child, and that's important, especially as children are older and recover from these critical illnesses. Aside from what the parent or caregiver perceives are the challenges or disability that they may have, it's important for the child to be able to assess how they compare to their peers and to perceive their level of function. And this particular set of indices showed that there was a fair degree of congruence, so very worthwhile. One of the other things that I, I think is very important that they pointed out in their work is that there are children who do have some degree of difficulty once they recover from their critical illness. And those are the children who are mechanically ventilated during their first day of their ICU course, as well as those that have the longest lengths of stay. Unfortunately, as you well know, Margaret, these are not parameters that we can necessarily control easily, but at least it may be surrogate marker for the child's severity of illness as they go through their, their illness course in the ICU. So I would say that this work is important, it's very timely and it's very relevant, and it allows for practitioners when, when they look at it to consider the value of establishing some goals and having some background in the area of health-related outcomes. Are there other tools that one can use to measure health-related outcomes besides this health utilities index? There, there are. There are. The work of Deborah Pfizer and others that had, had looked at the pediatric overall performance category and the pediatric cerebral performance category scores, essentially the POPC and the PCPC, that work has been very important and has really set an important stage for how children's long-term outcomes can be assessed. Also, there is a, a pediatric quality of life indicator that has been used actually initially in the realm of pediatric cancer, the pediatric quality of life inventory, which is known as the PEDS-QL, but has also been applied in modified versions to patients with neurological injury as well as patients with cardiovascular disease, congenital heart disease, and that tool has been, has been very useful across a number of different illness settings. We noted that Stevens and Friedman had not referenced that particular inventory. However, the strengths of the indices that they used, the health utilities indices two and three, have similarly been demonstrated in the PEDS performance, uh, long-term performance model. And so it's important to recognize that although there may be different tools that can be used, probably the most important point is that a tool should be used consistently to assess how patients are doing. It's important, I think, for there to be early initiation of whatever tool either a practitioner or a designated facility may opt to use, because the earlier that the data can begin to be collected, the more useful it will be in the long run.
What's important in a uh, tool to measure health-related uh, quality of life, and what should the pediatric intensivist know about such tools? So again, I, I, I herald back to the work of Stevens and Freeman, with which I think very eloquently delineates some of those very points. Number one, the study should be accessible. It should be validated. It should be easy. It should consider aspects of a child's long-term outcome that move beyond the traditional vitality outcomes of morbidity and mortality and even move beyond just the functional outcomes that we traditionally look at. We're thinking of things like exercise tolerance, risk for obesity, nutritional status, ability to cognitively and socially relate to other individuals. Those things are important but may not be as easily quantified or readily thought of as we as we take care of these critically ill and very vulnerable populations. And so I think as they've highlighted very well in their work, it's important to consider each of those aspects as well as, as what we typically look at in terms of what severe, if any, disability these patients develop. Another important consideration is that we would hope that such an ideal model for evaluating health-related outcomes would have at least some utility in evaluating the economic burden of children who have undergone critical illness and the complications that they develop. It is difficult, certainly, to extrapolate what the responses and what the outcomes from such tools may be, again, for just one patient. And it's hard to say that the results of such an evaluation should significantly affect how we practice and take care of these patients. But I would say that across populations, it is worthwhile to observe trends, and that over time may lead to, to deviations from what we do now and better inform our practice. Uh, most of us don't routinely get long-term follow-up on our patients after they leave the ICU, mm -hmm. with the exception of perhaps the frequent flyers. Right. So what should we be doing with this kind of information, or should we be getting it, or how should we be looking at long-term outcomes from our patients? So you make a very interesting point, because how ironic that these children are often the sickest children that are the ones that we serve, but then, like you said, once they leave our doors, we rarely know, except for those that, that repeatedly return, exactly what their outcomes are. I think it's important as we move forward with this work to think of how we can engage those practitioners that actually take care of the patients once they leave the ICU. So, for example, the practitioners, the chronic care facilities, those individuals often are the ones who are assessing and, more importantly, helping to advance these children through whatever disability may remain as a result of whatever therapies they needed during their care. So I think as pediatric intensivists, these tools provide the opportunity for better linkage and connection with pediatricians. It's it's not unreasonable to think that if there are indices or models that are being used across units or even in communities for that work to be shared with the pediatricians and the physicians on the outside, the subspecialists, the pulmonologists, the nephrologists, cardiologists who see these children who are in a better position to assess once the child is outside of their acute period of illness what their long-term disability or complications may be. I think as intensivists, we have to be aware of the fact that there are 
other outcomes that matter. I think traditionally we do think of most of our success or, or failures in the context of the patient lived, the patient did not survive, and how that sort of reflects how well the care uh, that re that the patient received uh, was was given. But that being said, if you consider that long-term exercise tolerance, as I'd mentioned before, that doesn't just affect how the child lives, that affects this person's life expectancy as an adult. And so I think that if we are conditioned to think beyond traditionally morbidity, mortality, survival, non-survival, and thinking of quality of life as a continuum along which this child must proceed, I think that will help us at least in our awareness and reciprocity to using such tools in our practice. It seems to me that as we, at least many places, are moving towards a medical home model, mm -hmm. um, that this kind of tool and information would be extremely important as we create a more integrated and coordinated care system for a child. I could not agree with you more, Margaret, because when you consider the fact that exactly many of these children hopefully will have a medical home that's usually centered around a common institution, shared practitioners, and again, most importantly, knowing that if that child does get sick, they return to that same primary pediatric unit and then go out to that same community. I do think that it allows practitioners and caregivers outside of the ICU to really be able to follow them longitudinally. If you have a child who comes in, just as you said, those frequent flyers whom we might see once or twice in a respiratory season or otherwise, knowing that we have data collected and reviewed as to how the patient did initially, I think that information can even help inform not just medical providers that are part of this child's medical medical community, but especially parents and caregivers. If you're able, let's say, to demonstrate over time to a parent that this child, after repeated hospitalizations, that they're functional capacity is diminished to some degree, that may very well impact the types of long-term decisions that patients' families make, especially for those children that we care for who may have either long-term lethal or otherwise progressively debilitating diagnoses. So I agree with you very much that use of indices like the Health Utilities Index, like the PEDS Quality of Life Inventory, those tools can serve to say more than just, okay, we pat ourselves on the back, we did a good job, this child left without any serious debilitating sequelae, but furthermore, to say three months out, six months out, when we're not seeing them in the office but someone else is, where are they really in comparison to their peers, and really to give caregivers some sort of direction as to what the impact of the illness may be. So where do we need to go from here? So we need to go to a couple of places. We need to go to a point where we understand, probably most importantly again, that this work cannot at this point prognosticate how individual patients are going to do, but it can allow us to perhaps have better insight into populations that we treat as a whole. I think we need to move toward a direction where we incorporate discussions of long-term outcome in our daily discussions for patients. We're very good, I think, as intensive care teams in terms of identifying what goals need to be met 
and attaining those goals. I think we do that very well. What I think that we can all work to improve is just that which you asked, what is the next step? It's wonderful to get a child through an acute period of illness, but sending that child home, even sending them to a subacute or even a chronic care facility to transition them home whenever it's possible, I think we sometimes, because just of the nature of our work, we lose sight of what exactly does that mean? How does a parent or a caregiver cope with a child who was able to keep up with their peers, run as fast as everyone else, finish the puzzles as quickly as anyone else, and now suddenly can't do that after a recent bout of a severe pneumonia for which they were intubated? Perfectly normal, happy child. How how do we help that family adjust? And I think that if we consider the care that we're giving in terms of more than just the acute and the present, but what does this mean for this patient in the long term, I think that that would be important in these children's long-term success. The other direction that I think we need to, to move in in terms of our work as intensivists is trying to develop some consistency in how we evaluate these outcomes. Again, Stevens and Friedman have highlighted in a very eloquent and very meticulous way the value of one specific index, however, set of indices. However, there are others, as we've discussed, that are present that have been used with success in the past, and I think it's worth, as a community, evaluating what fits our populations the best. We know that the neonatal populations, congenital heart populations, oncologic populations, and others have looked at that TBI, but what as intensivists for the more common illness processes we see, what do we think works best? Another area that I think is very ripe for further work and, and further research and evaluation is looking at shorter term illnesses and particularly illnesses that occur acutely suddenly in well children versus the debilitating and often progressive nature of and loss of quality of life for children who have chronic disease. We serve essentially two different populations in the ICU, as you well know, and for those acute children for whom we wouldn't hope or wouldn't expect them to have maybe even subtle differences, I would be very curious for one to know how does a two or three or four day stay in the ICU affect a patient? Maybe perhaps not physically as much, but perhaps cognitively or socially in a way that's a little more difficult to quantify, but nevertheless, especially for a child as they're moving through the development of critical importance. So I think in, in summation, I think we do do a very good job as in intensivists and intensive care teams of trying to do what's best for the patient and trying to mitigate risk and trying to do what we can to optimize their outcomes. But again, I think that we are moving toward and work like that of Stevens and Friedman highlights the fact that we're moving away from just whether the patient lives or dies, but beyond that. And I think ultimately, as, we be, as we're able to finesse our approach, I think that will that will bode very well for our patients in the long term. Thank you. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? I'm just very grateful for the opportunity to be here today. I think that this is an important area that these authors have brought to light. I think that their work, as I've mentioned, has 
sort of set set a standard within this discipline to encourage more of us to reevaluate our practice in the context of such of such tools and to see how over time we can incorporate it with better consistency into the work that we do. Well, thank you for being here, Nana. Have a good day. We have been talking with Dr. Nana E. Coleman from the Weill Cornell Medical College in New York, New York, uh, discussing the article, Health-Related Outcomes in Children After Critical Illness, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in July 2012. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Mark your calendar for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 42nd Critical Care Congress, which will take place January 19th through 23rd, 2013 in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Enjoy paradise in its purest form and catch up on life's most perfect pleasures so you can return from Congress refreshed and energized. Registration opens June 2012 at www.sccm.org congress. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.